Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And James, uh, exciting guest time. Um, yes. Put, put everyone out of their misery. <laughs> well, it, it's Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford University. Ah, um, it's been a long time in coming, but, but, but Rana is the expert on China's war. Yeah. And um, as we all know, it's a it's a it's a murky, grim, gigantic, for the most part, completely gigantic, gigantic and miserable episode and part of the war and a, and a big part of the war. Um, but it's a part that that most people, particularly us in the West, know very very little about. Um, and so to sort of unpick it, I mean, Al, you and I, we've we talked about the Battle of Shanghai. We talked about about Wanking and going to Wuhan and all the rest of it and the retreat retreat of um, um, of Mao, um, not Mao, of um, uh, uh, of Chiang Kai Shek into to um, Chongqing. Well, and the bombing and, of Chongqing uh, in the context of bombing in the, re- the, the, the yes. rest of the world and and its place in that story too. However, absolutely. Um, and we've touched on Stillwell in the past and the hump and all this sort of stuff, which is the Americans for the most part um, uh, flying supplies in over the um, over the Himalayas. But I think, you know, what we still are a little bit unclear about is that sort of massive chunk of war that happens in the middle between, I don't know, the, the, the kind of the, the times of the reach for occupation and and um, expansion of Japanese territory within China in sort of you know second half of 1938 through to the start of Ichigo in in the beginning of 1944. What's happening then? Because it sounds like you know from a from a kind of kinetic fighting point of view, not a huge amount, but plenty of other things besides that. Well, welcome, Rana. Well, nice, nice easy of start of a 10 there, I have to say. Well, Al, Al James, it's a huge pleasure to be on a legendary podcast, and I have to say that uh, despite your modesty, you clearly know a great deal about China's Second World War, so I'm going to have to make sure I'm on my kind of A-game in this particular uh, particular case. Unlike Chiang Kai-shek during large parts of the fighting, but we'll probably get to that at some stage. Yeah, well, he's such a fascinating character, isn't he? I mean... Oh, well, he, he did us the great favour. I mean, you you know, you know, two historians will, I hope, uh, know what I mean by this. He kept a diary pretty much every single day of his life from the age of about 20 till he was in his... Um, God, what do you mean his 80s, I suppose, certainly the early 1970s. So um, he was someone who historians just adore because, of course, whatever he was thinking, good, bad, indifferent, he just wrote it down, and it's such gold, I have to uh, to say. So from the point of view of the war, that is helpful in terms of making exactly that point you've just given, which is that between essentially 1938 and 1944, if you go to what often is a, frankly, pretty broad-brush summary of that period of the war in China in a lot of very generalist books. It just says, stalemate, or words of that mm. effect. You know, not much happens, and people are sort of humming and hawing a bit on China's central plains, but not really very much going on. And, and that really couldn't be further from the truth. What is the case is that the big set-piece battles, uh, the ones that I know that you have actually had some um, interest in discussing in the past, uh, Shanghai and uh, also Taiyuan, I think, you know, some of these early uh, clashes um, are not reproduced in quite that sort of a way during that period. And then at the end of the period, as you mentioned, in mid-1944, you get Operation Ichigo, which, you know, along with um, Bagration and the other ones that are found on the uh, Eastern European, indeed the Western European front as well, do mark some of those huge final smashing advances that happened during that time. But what's going on in the middle? Well, let's say a couple of things that I think are of immense importance. The first thing is that troops are amassing amongst the two actors who are very uneasy, 
uneasily allied at that point against the Japanese. So that's the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek, and the communists, who at that stage, I think it is fair to say by that stage you can say that Mao is the dominant character, but it's during these years that he actually rises to supreme and paramount power. And in both cases, you have you know, a set of political actions, in particular in the case of the communists, they're bringing forward much more of a vision of a society that combines a new type of social uh, contract with a much more militaristic form of, uh, of life, with the Red Army, of course, at the, at the heart of that. But at the same time, they're also literally recruiting large numbers of troops. In the case of the nationalist armies, they're having to start to conscript, which they weren't actually doing at the beginning of the, uh, the war, because there was enough incentive in many cases to make it worth fighting. But by the time you get to the period we're talking about, early 1940s, the nationalist armies are in a really appalling state, and basically mm. um, forced recruitment happens in a big way. That's not so visible on the Chinese communist side. It's not invisible, but on the other hand, um, it's, it's, it's more muted, partly because part of the political um, uh, project that the communists are putting forward is that you have to join the revolution, you shouldn't be dragged, uh, dragged into it. But seeing the way in which these two major forces, you almost might think of it as a sort of magnetic pole where the charge or you know the, the force is moving from one pole to the other. At the beginning of this period, the pole, the energy is very much with the nationalists in Chongqing and with Chiang Kai-shek's troops. By the end, by the time you get into 1944, the magnetic charge, so to speak, has really gone in the other direction. And it's the communists, it's the CCP, it's Mao's people who really have the, uh, the, the strength in their hands. So that's the dynamic that I think I'd give you for those years from 38 to 40. Rana, um, Mao's recruitment, does it pitch itself in the style of the... It was the Soviets, after all make a virtue of going Russian, don't they? They, they, they make a th- point of, of, of using nationalism as a, as a sort of motivational recruiting tool. Do the Mao communists do the same thing? Are they doing, is it, or is it still is purely in a revolutionary sphere that they're, that they're defending China? Really what's happening with the communists during this period, Al, is that they are rethinking their tactics on, if not a daily basis, that's probably too much, certainly on a monthly basis. Right. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of very dynamic thinking. And it brings together two or three different strands, all of which are visible if you sort of uh, pick apart the strands of, of thinking both about politics and about the military. And by the way, I would say that for the Chinese Communist Party, perhaps more than any other political entity, uh, you know, certainly in Asia, I think, during this, this, this time, the idea that politics and military are two separate things is really for the birds. These are very much aspects of the same... Um, idea of rewiring societies. So, you know, when they're thinking about new ways in which, you know, a regiment can be brought together or which, you know, I don't know, hand grenade practice might, might, might be part of it, they're also thinking about what that means in terms of the ideological uh, projections they're putting forward. So what are they doing? Well, first of all, do they go Russian, as you put it? Uh, in other words, do they go Chinese? Yes, absolutely. Right. One of the things you can see from the you know, endless propaganda that's put out by the Chinese Communist Party, which in a sense echoes what their their uneasy allies, the nationalists, are, are doing, is to talk about how this is a defence of the homeland, this is a defence essentially of China, and, you know, if China becomes, in a phrase that was very common during much of that um, early 20th century period, becomes a, a destroyed nation, a lost nation, a Wangguo, then, you know, there's just no way it will be recovered. So the Chinese Communists have always been nationalists with a small n, and World War II is very much at the centre of that dynamic. But they are also communists. And one of the things that is very notable about, let's say specifically the years 1942 to 44, is something that, weirdly, but perhaps not so weirdly, Xi Jinping, the current Chinese um, uh, general secretary and, and president, has been bringing up a lot in documents that he's been publishing, you know, in 2021, 2022, so right up the moment, which is something called the rectification movement. And this is something that essentially happens in its most intense form in Yan'an, the, you know, for the Chinese legendary red base area up in northwest China and Shanxi province, you know, very, very harsh, yellow, lowest soil, very, very um, backward conditions, you might say, not a very kind of sophisticated area, but one which is perfect in a sense to be sort of cut off from the rest of the world and really concentrate on your politics. And what Mao does at that stage, along with his various um, henchmen, uh, they pretty much are all men at this, this stage, including Kang Sheng, his security chief, who learnt much of his tactics in Moscow in the 1930s. So you can imagine he wasn't really kind of liberal-minded kind of guy. What they did was to essentially put forward a dynamic by which if you wanted to get into the Chinese Communist Party, if you wanted to reach the top, 
whether you were sort of essentially civilian or military, you had to become ex immensely expert in the works of Mao himself. So of 22 key works that you had to read and memorise essentially and be tested on, 18 of those 22 were by Mao. And that's why historians would tend to look at the rectification period, 1942 to 44, as the period when Mao moves from being a big, powerful, influential leader within the Communist Party towards becoming the leader, the paramount leader. And it's the fact that he has such a hold on military tactics that helps to build his credibility. So a couple of the essays for which Mao, you know, even now is read in China's military colleges, I'm thinking places like the Academy of Military Sciences up in uh, Beijing, where I once had a very enjoyable lunch where I was taken in a, uh, a sort of limousine with dark um, windows. And I sort of thought as I was being driven off to the far, you know, reaches of Beijing, I probably should have told my wife about this before I went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this I my did, last I, journey? I, I, did, I did indeed get let out after a very, very uh, pleasant lunch, I have to say. But, you know, next, next time I might just leave, leave a word on the phone or something. Anyway... <laughs> When I've asked people at places like China's Academy of Sciences, you know, do you still read anything by Mao today from you know any period in terms of, of military tactics? They always always come back to Qi Jiu Zhan, the nineteen thirty eight um, essay, which in English we know as On Protracted War, because that is the essay, and it's available in English. It's online, free. You know, feel free to to look it up uh, if you if you don't know it. Um, this is the essay that talks, in a sense, both about the importance of having the long-term goal, hence the idea of protracted war. And they knew that the war in China was not going to be quick, it wasn't going to be easy, there'd have to be retreats into the interior before the acquisition of some sort of foreign assistance would eventually enable them to defeat the, the, the Japanese. But it's also about varying tactics. So if there's one tactic for which the Chinese communists are probably known during this period, it is, of course, guerrilla warfare. And the development of that kind of tactic, you know, when the enemy advances, we retreat. When the enemy retreats, we advance. When it's at night, we harass the enemy. You know, all these sorts of tactics, which they knew would not in and of themselves defeat the Japanese. They weren't, um, you know, all-encompassing enough tactics to be able to do that. But they could certainly make sure that they never felt at ease, they never felt settled, and that they could essentially be harassed into a state by which eventually foreign assistance would enable the Chinese side to, to, to defeat um, defeat Japan. So all of these sorts of tactics, I mean, not just in that one essay on protracted war, but in a whole variety of writings about ways of essentially fighting when you are weak, but you have tactics that you can use against a stronger enemy, are part of that mixture that makes this period of the war very distinctive in terms of the refining of Mao's theory of warfare and how it applies in practice to the war against the Japanese. I mean, one of the things that I think is is so fascinating. I mean, that that, that in itself is incredibly fascinating, and it's fascinating what 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 Chang is up to and and what the Japanese are up to. But but for the vast majority of the tens of millions of Chinese who are impoverished, this is just an absolute nightmare from start to finish, isn't it? You know that they're, they're being browbeaten. Um, Butchered, raped, uh, um, treated like dirt, used as slave labour by the Japanese. Um, frankly, the Chang government's not doing an awful lot more. Um, it's treated them pretty much as badly. Uh, um, perhaps not quite as badly, but I mean, you know, you know, this is not a good time to be a Chinese peasant, is it? It's one of the most horrifying periods in modern Chinese history, and God knows China's had quite a few of those, the Cultural Revolution of the 60s being another yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, example. Oh. Agree with some of what you said, James, and push back on another bit. I'll yeah, please why. push back. We'll push back away. I mean, first of all, just a recommendation here. I recently uh, interviewed for another podcast, BBC Arts and Ideas podcast. Um, the novelist Melissa Fu, whose new novel Peach Blossom Spring is based actually in part on a fictionalisation of her father's uh, memories of being a 12 year old boy in wartime China and having just been on the run all the time, you know, yeah. on foot. Uh, boats down the Yangtze, you know, dodging bombs, uh, dodging, you know, in Chongqing for a while. Uh, yes, it's that displacement of people that's just phenomenal, it, it isn't it? Intense displacement of people. So, you know, that novel, I think, is one very good way to sort of get a feeling for, for how it's been fictionalised. But just a couple of, you know, very stark, but I think indicative statistics that give an idea of the scale of what we're talking about here, because in some ways it does dwarf what we see in, in parts of, of Europe at this time. Although statistics still have their flaws and problems because, you know, in the midst of all this, people were not necessarily keeping the best statistical records, you could say reliably that the number of deaths during wartime on the Chinese um, part, both civilian and military, is anywhere between about 8 to 14 million people. Now, that's not all combat casualties, we should say. Um, that's probably in the 1 or 2 million uh, range. So that's, you know, significantly less than, say, uh, the Soviet Union at this time. But you have to include, for instance, numbers like 4 million who starved to death in the Henan famine 
of 1942, an event which would not have happened had it not been for a combination of invasion, uh, a certain amount of uh, you know, natural disaster or so in terms of, of the weather, but also the tax policies of Chiang Kai-shek's government, which seized grain even when there wasn't enough to, to, to eat. And there are plenty of other events, uh, bacteriological warfare, the uh, flooding of the Yellow River dikes, which were blown yes, up yes, to stop yes. the Japanese advancing. And that's a Chiang decision, these... isn't it? And that's a Chiang Kai-shek decision and one of his most terrifying ones, I think, during that, uh, during that, uh, that time. Um, during this time, we also, historians like Stephen McKinnon have estimated that you're probably talking 80 to 100 million Chinese become refugees in their own country at some point during these years. Some of them get to go back home during the war, to be, to be fair, but the level of displacement is huge. The reason that I give you a slight amendment to the idea that the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government don't, don't do very much, though, is that we do now have a lot more evidence that, in a very tentative way, and with lots of flaws, they did start to build up a kind of Chinese welfare state in the wartime years. So we have a lot of documentation that suggests for the first time people are being given compensation for air raid damage on their property. A health system begins to bring up, part, not, not necessarily for inter entirely altruistic reasons, but partly because you need, first of all, to make sure that disease isn't running rife through your population, particularly if seeking to recruit the young men from that population to throw them into, into the, you know, the, the, the horrifying... Um, and, and the Japanese are, 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 throwing, are introducing... Um, diseases, aren't they? And don't they introduce bubonic plague and all that stuff? The, the late Professor Bu Ping of uh, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences dedicated much of his life to doing very detailed work on bacteriological warfare and the use, basically, of infection by you know Japanese through bio bombs uh, throughout uh, China as well. So you know this kind of tactic is being used very broadly uh, broadly throughout this uh, this whole period. Don't forget also, I'm sure we'll probably come onto this, but it's just worth mentioning at this point that there does exist through much of this period. 1938 through to the end of the war, a rival collaborationist government uh, with its capital at Nanjing. So if, you know, we can think of Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong in a certain way of being, I don't know, the Charles de Gaulle yep. or whatever of the um, Chinese war effort, then if you want the sort of Laval-Pétain side of things, mm. then a man called Wang Jingwei, one of the kind of Wang former Jingwei, yes. of the Nationalist Party, yeah. He sets up a regime, you know, with Japanese sponsorship, you know, so without the Japanese, it simply wouldn't have happened in Nanjing from 1940. And it's worth noting that it has a whole social structure of its own, including uh, employment, welfare processes, uh, all these sorts of things as a kind of alternative pseudo state for much of that period as well. And that's what lots of people who are fleeing actually go back to, because we know that the war is going to end in 1945. They don't know that at that time. For all they know, the Japanese are going to be there for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah, and sure. that's one of the things that, you know, people are putting, you know, calculating in their minds at that time. Should we stay or should we go? But, but Rana, how I mean, what, as a proportion of, of Chinese population, you, you know, you, you, you've got the very top. You've got the, your Changs and his court and all the rest of it uh, yeah. down in um, Chongqing. Um, you've got the collaborationist government in, in, um, in Nanking. You've got... A, a middle class who are doing clerical jobs and good jobs of government and all the rest of it. Yes, what's the pie chart, I think, is the question. What's the pie? <laughs> that is exactly it. I mean, is it is it one percenter in that category, or is it five, or is it ten? But whatever it is, the, the, the remainder hmm. are just completely shat on, whichever way you look at it. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm sort of cheered to hear that there is a little bit of sort of welfare state going on, but how much does that affect your average... Chinese punter who just gets caught up in the typhoon of steel and the kind of the whirlwind of war that is just sort of raging through China and is, you know, has some of his family bayoneted to death at some point just for fun, by just for kicks by the Japanese. Then the rest of he and his family are kind of basically brought in to be effectively slave labour until they die. It, it seems to me there's an awful lot of that going on, or is that has that been slightly overcooked, do you think? No, I mean, I think there's, there is a reason that just a few years after the end of World War II, there is a transformative and violent communist revolution in China that doesn't come out of nowhere. And yep. one of the places it does come out of is the increasing anger and disillusionment of the peasant population of China who have a pretty raw deal. You know, their young men are being recruited by the end forcibly into the armies, thrown into the meat grinder. Um, their grains are being confiscated for taxation purposes, partly actually to keep the armies fed. So, you know, there's a sort of feeling that it's like a machine in which everything is being thrown in to keep the war going against the Japanese, but it's destroying society while that happens. And that, of course, is gold dust for the communists who say that when this war is over, we'll show you a different way of living that actually is going to be something quite, uh, quite different. In terms of the kind of proportion of the population, the pie chart, as um, uh, Al's put it, um, I would say that this is a time when China is still 
predominantly, you know, vastly agrarian. I mean, today, you know, we're obviously talking 80 years later, something like half of China's population lives technically in cities, not all of them in skyscraper type cities, but nonetheless in urban areas. It's a much, much smaller population, let's say 10% or less, that's urban at that time. And not all of those urban characters are elites, of course, you know, people like... Um, uh, world famous writers, you know, sort of uh, great literary figures or figures like Chiang Kai-shek. This is a tiny, tiny minority. Right. But even the sort of emergent middle class in a city like Shanghai, people who had been accountants or teachers, you know, people who are literate enough to leave some of their memoirs behind, as many of them have have done. This was still a relatively small grouping within a society that overall is just profoundly and uh, fundamentally agrarian. And one of the best records we have of that, actually, it's one of my favourites, um, which I wrote about uh, in, in, in the book that I wrote on this, is um, spotted by a man called Zhang Jingguo. And Zhang Jingguo is the son of Chiang Kai-shek. Um, he uh, is a fluent Russian speaker. He actually sort of spent about 10 years in Russia in the 20s and 30s, sort of half a guest and half a kind of hostage of Stalin during that period. That's a, a separate but interesting story in its own right. But he's back in China by the time of, of the war. And he actually has a genuine interest in social reform in a way that his um, dad, Chiang Kai-shek, frankly, probably doesn't in quite the same way. And so he gets sent down to a really remote rural part of China in Jiangxi province in sort of southern China for several years of the war. And he keeps a diary, which um, I've read parts of. It's very, very, very interesting. And some of the things he observes is just the kind of the low level at which some of these concepts of, you know, kind of war and enemy and so forth sit with these people. So he turns up at the local uh, kind of administration office. He says the whole thing kind of has a rather sleazy air and it turns out there's a massive jar of urine people are just I think kind of peeing in a pot there and sort of saving it for commercial uh, purposes because you could sell it for ammonia later on but you wouldn't normally want it in your local government office if you could uh, could could help it uh, he, he, he found out I think also that a whole bunch of local propaganda leaflets had gone missing it turned out that these bundled leaflets were being used as a pillow by the uh, the local administrator so you know the, the local management was pretty pretty poor but when he came to actually talk to some of the ordinary folks you know the peasantry and started asking what they knew about any of these political concepts. And one of his conversations goes, so, do you know who Wang Jingwei, this is like, you know, the, the, the collaborating yeah. leader, um, is? And the answer is, yes, he is, he's in Japan. It's like, well, no, he's actually, he's in, he's in China. It's like, okay, uh, and, and do you know, do you know what, 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 what he's been up to? Um, yes, he is, um, he is a Japanese imperialism. And he's saying, well, do you know what that means? And it's like, Oh, yes, it's something in Japan. And there's this sort of whole circular conversation that doesn't really make any sense. They're just sort of parroting these phrases they've been taught, yeah. which they know are important in some way, but don't suggest any kind of in-depth understanding of the political stakes uh, of the war as a whole. And again, it gives you an indication of why, when the communists take over just a few years later, political propaganda and sort of grabbing people and not letting them go until they really kind of have it, you know, in, in their systems, how this kind of political transformation works, becomes so important to them because they too knew that the, the starting point was a very, very low level of political... Uh, and is this how stuff's being transmitted then, by, via leaflets and speeches and stuff? Because after all, we're, we're not looking at a society with radio, are we? So, um, uh, you know, it's not like Germany where the, where the Nazi government makes full use of the fact that 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 radio is modern and new and um, everyone's got a radio how's how's this sort of information spreading or these ideas no you're, you're quite right i mean this is first of all this is not a highly literate society so sending out propaganda leaflets unless they got with pictures on them which they sometimes do doesn't help um there is radio in the cities actually right. to be fair but you're right that it doesn't sort of extend much beyond that people in the countryside you know unlike today would not have access to to to, to broadcasting um but one of the most interesting sets of documents I've seen is about the way in which the nationalists, as well as the communists, actually, but certainly the nationalists, use a whole variety of quite traditional tactics and methods um, to send a new type of propaganda message. So, for instance, traditional performance and dance, you know, traditional Chinese opera, which people in the countryside would have seen in their leisure times frequently, and you probably kind of heard the kind of clashing of cymbals and the slightly sort of wailing-sounding voices to the, you know, the, the Western ear. It, it, it sounds in some ways quite discordant, but it's a very familiar yeah. part of the Chinese cultural tradition. So if, as they did, you took these um, stories and adapted them to, you know, the Japanese invading the village or whatever it might be, you can basically spread propaganda through these forms of popular um, uh, popular art and, and culture. I've also seen some documents that basically provide a sort of 
to an alpha and a beta version, you might say, of some of the propaganda messages. So there's one that has sort of 12 points if you're talking to sophisticated people. And then basically it's boiled down to just the four most important points if they feel that these propaganda workers are going out into places where people don't really understand what's going on. They think that four points is going to be easier to remember than, than 12. Whether it works is another question. At least they are thinking about the, the issue. But it's a very oral culture. And, of course, don't forget, I mean, it is worth, we've said it before, but just worth saying again, all of this is happening at the same time, that the country's collapsing yeah. around people while, you know, air raids are going on, and while the very structures of government, which stayed in some ways pretty constant, certainly in Britain, and also, of course, the United States during this period, were really under the most tremendous pressure in uh, in China itself. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with all this displacement as well, everyone knows it's, everyone knows it's happening. You can't be in a part of China and not be aware of this. That, that's right. I mean, essentially, you know, China from the whole period, let's say from the mid-1930s or 1937 and the outbreak of full war to really the end of the civil war in 1949 is a country that's constantly on the move and generally not in a good way. Um, it is shaped perhaps more than any other major society at this time by constant refugee flight and the dynamic that is shaped by that. So, you know, people taking their... Uh, you know, their professional goods and so forth with them if they want to sort of set up shop again in Chongqing down down the river. Because, again, they don't know if this possibly might be a settlement that lasts for years and yeah. years and years. Yeah. And it's worth remembering, I mean, this comes just right at the beginning of the period that you're talking about, but if you look at things like British and, indeed, Japanese military assessments of China's war performance in about 1938, the expectation at that point is that China's defenders, the nationalists um, in particular, are going to collapse if that had happened, then, of course, you get into... I and mean, we don't go too far into virtual scenarios, but the alternative scenario would have then been that actually Japan probably would have you know, turned China into some kind of puppet state under its control. And it would have meant both that, of course, the entire history of the Second World War would be different because you don't get to Pearl Harbor that way. But also, domestically within China, people would have had to sort of pick up the pieces where they were and perhaps essentially deal with the fact that they had had to move at high speed from everything they knew that was familiar and, you know, start uh, start almost again. In a strange way, of course, that's not a bad description of what happens at the end of World War II when a whole bunch of people flee in the Civil War and move to Taiwan, where, of course, many of their answer, their successors have remained till the, the present day. Um, I think it's... It, it, just to go back to kind of why China doesn't completely collapse. I mean, the Japanese don't... They have these incredibly... These huge sweeping advances in 1937, 1938. And, and then, basically, they stop. And, and they stop, I suppose, because... They're running out of money because the the areas are too big for them to man. To, to just the expanse of it is so enormous um, that you know to press on to Chongqing is just too big a task logistically. All those sort of reasons, and so that is why you get this sort of this period where they've got their areas of occupation, and you've got the rest of the, the sort of western half of and, and southern half of China, which is still in kind of sort of, you know, Chang's control and the communists up in the north. And enter, enter stage left is is the United States. You know, Britain has said, you know, we're not going to back, back the Chinese because we're, we're too stretched already and we don't think that it's going to lead to anything. The Americans sort of go, well, hang on a minute. You know, if we can pay for, we can supply them and and train up their armies and they can do all the fighting so our boys don't have to do it you know what's not to like and we can kind of lift the chinese up into a kind of new level and, and restore world order and all that kind of stuff and it just goes horribly wrong and the reason it goes horribly wrong is because it's just such you know china is just such a behemoth it's just so big isn't it it's just and it's and and the heart of it that big core is too backward to just be able to just train up. I mean, you know, the nationalist army, are, you know, they're lacking tanks, they're lacking heavy artillery, they're lacking modern weaponry, you know. It, they're it, lacking shoes at various They're points. lacking <laughs> shoes at various points. I mean, it is it is, it is, is young men with, with sort of pitchforks and rifles, isn't it? And, and only a handful of rifles and a mixture of rifles. And they're just and, and they've got rifles, not... but they don't necessarily have bullets. You know, Ray Huang, who became right, actually exactly. a very, very famous historian of the Ming dynasty, was a young nationalist soldier. And, you know, he was in the educated classes and i think he recalled you know they were given a few hundred bullets which as you know over time won't won't won't, won't go very far uh, at all i mean all these things are in the mix but it's worth just you know picking out some of the some of the strands in that because they do yeah. i think stress something that you know you said this at the beginning i'm really glad you said and i, I want to say it again those of us listening in and you may have some this i have many listeners from china on on this po podcast and a lot of uh, you know podcasts on war are very well listened to in china but assuming that you know many listeners are not chinese the Chinese contribution to World War II either tends to be completely unknown or really underplayed on the grounds that they weren't really fighting or, you know, that it wasn't terribly, terribly important. Yeah. So 
let me just say a couple of things. The first thing is that launching a really big land war in Asia is generally a bad idea. I mean, who knew? <laughs> and the, 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 the way in which, you know, you put those incredibly sensible points just there, James, about, you know, it's huge, it's a behemoth. Well, it's not as if people didn't know this stuff beforehand. And yet, you know, different foreign countries keep doing this in different parts of, of Asia. So we have all the records. Um, and actually, the wonderful historian, I have to say, my former student, Eri Hotter, whose book, Japan 1941, talks about the Japanese side of the decision of the uh, decision on the way to Pearl Harbor, has these, you know, poignant, sort of almost not really funny in any any way, but sort of deeply ironic conversations between the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, and his generals in, in 1941, saying, well, if we launch a war against the Americans, we'll do, you know, kind of lightning strust and it'll all be over very, very quickly. And he said, yeah, I remember like four years ago, you told me of this about China, that you invade <laughs> China, and then it'll all be over by, not Christmas for the Japanese, obviously, but, you know, three and a half months later. Uh, but, you know, four years later, we're still there. So, you know, how much am I supposed to believe you? Although, of course, but but I suppose what, what my point is, it's, it's kind of Russia, it's like the Soviet Union, in reverse isn't it i mean it's, it's kind of or not even in reverse i mean it's it's, it's well similarly it's this huge internal uh, area that's just very very and, difficult to control. the logistics so you... are just so enormous that you can't just overrun yeah. a country the size of china which is why japan stops when it stops because it is too big and you're absolutely right of course i knew that beforehand it, it is too big at that uh, at that stage and it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to control but it, it's also worth noting that the chinese and japanese did essentially get themselves into a situation where on the one hand China was clearly too uh, extensive, too big for the Japanese to control. But as you say, the level of preparation—well, the preparation is, is one thing—but you know, even the level of supplies and you know networks of resources that the Chinese communists or nationalists had was simply too scanty to be able to actually launch a kind of all-out warfare. And this is something that both Mao and Chang knew at the beginning. That's why you get essays like *On Protracted War* or indeed Chang's right. diaries, where he says we're going to have to, with you know, he calls it trading space for time. He's not going down to Chongqing because he's not sure what to do. He's been planning that since the mid-1930s because he knows that without a foreign ally, and he doesn't really care who it is, you know, he's a, he's a fanatical anti-communist at home, but he was desperately trying to get the Soviet Union to yeah. step in. And again, it's worth remembering, it's often forgotten, that in the first few months of the war, Soviet fighter pilots coming in as volunteers, and I'm doing little quote marks here, um, do actually defend these skies above Shanghai. And that's a really important if unofficial contribution that does do something to kind of protect at least some of the retreat of the nationalists into the interior at that uh, uh, at that time. But all of that is tactics rather than strategy at this stage. He knows he needs the Soviets or the British or the Americans or someone to come in and essentially save the day. Stretching a bit, and, you know, you guys are the experts on this, stretching a little bit, it's a bit like, you know, what the British Empire had to do. You know, Churchill knew that eventually, you know, it was likely that they would be able to defeat the Nazis, but that the United States was an essential part of the mixture, along with the Soviet Union, of course, in terms of getting to that point. And just as when Pearl Harbor happened, you know, Churchill, you know, recalled that there was going to uh, be a sort of massive turn in the right direction. Chiang Kai-shek, in his diaries, also remembers something very, uh, records something very similar. He knows that once the Americans are in the war, that is the turning point. But my goodness, as he pointed out, and his generals pointed out, it took four and a half years after the outbreak of war in China to get there. And had they collapsed at any point in between, there wouldn't have been an Asian war and a Pearl Harbor, the sort that we know, to actually take part in. We just need to take a quick break. We'll see you in a tick. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. At the, right at the start of this, we talked about Chiang Kai-shek's A-game and uh, possible lack of it. Why Why doesn't he lose then? Because he doesn't lose, does he? I mean, we, it's all very well saying, oh, he's ineffective, he can't defeat the Japanese. But why can't the Japanese in the end defeat, defeat him if he's so hopeless? Because he is, he is very often, you know, he, he's, he's a, a sidebar in a lot of the histories you read. Oh, and the you know Chang's Chang's corrupt. His people are corrupt. They're not making they're not making a proper effort. Is very often the sort of the sort of criticism you get handed down in the broader histories that they're they're no good at it. Um, why doesn't why why did how does he hang on for so long? Because that's that's the crucial part of the story is that he does after all. Because as you say, if Japan wins in Japan wins in China, settles that account, they can concentrate on elsewhere or not need to. You know, uh, uh, um, so why? how does he hang on for so long? I think it's a combination of personal and structural factors. I will mention the personal one because for the reasons that you've just both given, the kind of popular story, I mean, probably truer perhaps 40, 50 years ago than it yeah. is now, but nonetheless still kind of out there, is that Chiang Kai-shek was this kind of lazy, corrupt, feckless character who, you know, couldn't organise, um, couldn't run a bath. And this is, you know, really... Um, a view that China historians in recent years have significantly revised, not least because of the, the diary uh, uh, materials. It is true that, you know, in terms of the most innovative type of military strategy, Chiang Kai-shek does not compare to someone on the communist side like Lin Biao, you know, the, the, the great communist general who eventually won the civil war through a whole variety of, uh, of tactics. But nonetheless, his own, Chiang Kai-shek's own determination and you can see this from his diary entries at the time, you know, not written in retrospect. He's just not going to give in. He just will not give up what he sees as his nationalist mission to create this sort of strong, sovereign China. Because God knows the Japanese try over and over again. Yeah. And even attempt, as I've said, some of his um, former um, kind of colleagues to become collaborators. But Chiang Kai-shek does kind of say, you know, the, the Japanese are really, if he had gone over, they would have given him a fantastic deal compared to almost any other Chinese leader because he was immensely prestigious at the time. But he actually just said, no, I'm not going to, uh, to do this. And again, the Churchill comparison, I think, is not a bad one in, 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 in that sense, in that having some very strong, stubborn sense that just you're just never going to surrender because that's the way yeah. it is, is part of it. But that's all very well, but we must talk about structure briefly. And I would say that the quickest way that I would summarise it, because obviously there's lots of specifics that, that come into it, is this. Chiang Kai-shek decided very early on, and those who worked with him, his you know chief of field command, uh, Hoi Ying-chin, and all of the, in many cases, immensely talented generals, Du Yuming, Xie Ye, and others who were involved in the specific campaigns, that they were going to throw everything into the war machine. Now, the Chinese war machine was not the Soviet war machine. You know, nobody was manufacturing tanks in Chongqing. They did have fantastic arsenals, which often aren't um, appreciated uh, enough. And, you know, we're talking about a small 
constrained state that's basically in a position of exile in southwest China. But that having been said, you know, as I mentioned before, in, in terms of kind of exploitation and cruelty, but in terms of, of, of the organizing of a wartime state, this is a state that just goes and mercilessly recruits endless young men to go into the army and keep fighting, whether they want to or not. This is a state that goes out in the fields and seizes the peasants' grain in lieu of um, tax when inflation is getting too high to keep the armies fed. This is um, uh, a state that does create these arsenals in Chongqing, which do produce kind of, you know, somewhat rubbish weapons, but nonetheless weapons that work, they're effective, and keep them going uh, going as well. It's also a state that continues to push this kind of strong idea that there is this nationalist mission of pushing back against foreign occupation and invasion. And of course, things like being air raided on a regular basis, you know, helps to concentrate people's minds in that direction. But the price that's paid is that because there's no slack in China, you know, Britain was bankrupt at the end of World War II, but nonetheless, Britain being bankrupt looks very different from China being bankrupt. There's still enough money to, to form the NHS yeah. and, you know, nobody starves yeah. to death in, 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 in Britain. A famine that kills four million people in China during those wartime years is one of the products of that war machine being kept going. That's why they win. But it's also one of the reasons why, in the end, the Nationalist Party loses, because it's whatever goodwill it may have had is really squeezed or burned away by the end by what they've had to do to keep the Chinese war machine going. Although by the same virtue, it's empowered the state in a way that when, if and when Mao takes charge, he's not doing anything radically different either, is he? So is that right? Or or, or, or is Mao so, so his own creation what Chiang Kai-shek's done before him is, is, is sort of politically irrelevant. No, I think it is right, Al. I mean, one of the things that I think is underappreciated is the way in which, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and Mao's communists were engaged in different, and in the case of Mao, much more radical, alternative visions of the same thing, which was a social contract that was going to emerge after the war was over. Um, uh, the historian Toyun Ma at Sheffield has written this fascinating article about how the beverage plan, you know, which in a sense is the welfare state in embryo during World War II in Britain, was translated into Chinese and read and discussed very extensively by Chinese nationalist uh, policymakers in the wartime years because they wanted to look at what the other allies were doing and saying, well, look, we should be doing this for China afterwards. I've read also documents by Jiang Tingfu, one of the big kind of policy makes the time talking about how China began its quotes national health service during World War II not quite the NHS that we know but these were the ideas that were in people's minds oh, goodness that's so there is this very strong sense of of social mission the tragedy is of course that you know the the level of destruction personal financial economic infrastructure in China is really way beyond that of any other, you know, major allied belligerent power at the time. So if you look at what, you know, becomes known briefly as the big four, when you add five in France, you get, you know, five at the at the end of World War Two. Of course, America, to some extent, and the Soviet Union and Britain in different ways are kind of exhausted, but they have, you know, in the end, a stable structure and a state that can move on to the next stage. China's in the weird position of being a winning allied power but in a sense, much more like somewhere like, you know, Germany or um, Central Europe that's been smashed into smithereens and in a sense doesn't have the kind of ironic privilege of being defeated and occupied so that the Americans will come and sort out all your problems for you. They have to do it themselves, but they're, they're almost sort of thrown a global proposition that they don't have the cash to actually be able to undertake. Yeah, but but it's also true, isn't it, that, I mean, Chang's government is is pretty corrupt. I mean, there are, you know, there is... There's not a sort of a clean free flow of, of money and supplies. You know, the, the rich are getting richer the, or, or they're certainly not getting poorer and the, the poorer are getting poorer and all that. I mean, is that going on or have I got that wrong? It's absolutely no, no, it's absolutely true. But the context, I think, does matter. So first of all, is Chiang Kai-shek's government incredibly corrupt? Yes, it absolutely is. You know, there's famous stories of, you know, rich people smuggling their fur coats and their kind of, you know, pomerang dogs or whatever on uh, transport planes while people are starving in the street, you know, all this sort of thing. Also, of course, the level of corruption that meant that food was being siphoned off while people are starving in the countryside, which Theodore White, the reporter for Time magazine, wrote these kind of blistering um, articles and rightly so. Just worth remembering the following things, though, because, again, they're different for China than they are in you know, any other major allied, uh, uh, well, any other allied belligerent at this, uh, at this time. One is, this is a state 
that is basically besieged. You know, essentially, after 1941, you can't get to the nationalist zone of um, uh, of, of China, except through this immensely, you know, perilous hump, um, uh, flying of the hump across from uh, from India. Uh, we should explain that this is this is because. The roads from Thailand and, and Burma have been blocked by the Japanese um, because Japanese are occupying Thai, Thai, Thailand and Indochina and, and, and Burma. And there's, there's no way in by land um, except over the over, you know, from from northeast India into China. And the border there is the Himalayas. And so you've got to get over those Himalayas to get into China. That, that is your own your one single route, which basically means that everything has to come in by air. And, and even if you're bringing in 18,000 tonnes a month by spring of 1944, which is what the Americans are, are doing, 18,000 tonnes for a nation of well hundreds of millions is, well, is this, not but, very much. But this is something, it's a pinbrick. This is something I wanted to ask you, Rana, is, is, is the American contribution, if you, if you compare it to Lend-Lease to the UK, to China, it, is, it purely, is it purely symbolic? Um, it, it, you know, because obviously keeping the hump open, that effort is an extraordinary airlift element. It's an, it's an incredible thing to achieve, but actually it's a drop in the ocean. So so sort of what's going on? Because it's the, the American policy is, is essentially a contradiction, isn't it? We're going to help. And, and by 1944, a lot of that material is going into the um, US Air Force yeah. bases, which are being yeah. set up in China rather yeah. than to the Chinese. Well, that's exactly. Because they've that's, already given up on the, that's on the exactly Chinese. My, that's exactly my point question is what the, the, the contradictions are sort of tell us about tell us about that because it's fascinating yeah, no, absolutely from 1941 to 44 if you look at the total spend on lend lease less than one percent of it goes to nationalist china in each of those years the one exception being 1945 when about 1.5 percent of the total goes so all the stories about corruption and black marketing you know they're, they're, they're true again but Relatively speaking, the amount that the Americans are actually spending in Lend-Lease terms in China is tiny compared to what they give to the Soviets and to the yeah. British Empire. Yeah. So it needs to be kept in proportion. Why is the American effort a drop in the ocean? I don't think that's quite fair, but it's not miles off. I think the argument I, I would make, and I think the Americans probably would have made at the time, is this, which is that geostrategically, the Americans made the right choice. But if you were China... It was fairly disastrous because, of course, <laughs> having had the debate right at the beginning, you know, after Pearl Harbor, of is it Pacific first? There's a very small but significant group of people who did say that that was the case, or Europe first? Well, James in particular you knows very well that Europe first was was what happened. But it also became therefore imperative, as the Roosevelt administration put it, to keep China in the war, but as a way essentially of holding down the Japanese on that long uh, in that landmass of the main Chinese territory. There was never any proposal, certainly at that point, that. Um, uh, American combat troops would fight on the ground in yeah. China. You know, the American volunteer group, which became then, of course, more regularised after Pearl Harbour, sure. But essentially, you know, General Stilwell, who you've discussed before on the, on the podcast, goes in as commander, American commander-in-chief of Chinese troops, which, again, is quite a, a concession by Chiang Kai-shek in its own right during that, uh, during that period. That said, had it not been for the United States, China could not have won the war. In other words, if China had not held on, meaning both nationalist and communist China, then there wouldn't have been an Asian war of the sort that we know of for the Americans and the British, indeed, to get involved with in 1941. Yeah. But had it not been for the Western allies coming in, China's resources and capacities were simply too low to make it possible. So eventually the also, Japanese would have won, won the day. Well, if nothing else had happened, then you can see at least it coming to, you know, there's a strong possibility that you get a sort of rather uneasy Japanese puppet state with probably a kind of guerrilla communist insurgency, but not actually an alternative uh, alternative regime. And let's not forget that, of course, we know now, in a way that they didn't about the Manhattan Project, but the assumption at the time, not least on the part of the Chinese nationalists, was that the war in Asia was going to go on for maybe, you know, two years or so mm. after the end of the war in Europe. A horrifying prospect yeah. for everyone, not least for the Chinese. But it did mean that China was sort of down the queue, so to speak, in terms of what was going to be done. You know, Europe, get that out of the way, May 1945, then the Pacific, and then China as part of the Asian theatre, but not being identical to it. One other note, just because it fits into the period we're talking about, and it's just worth dropping in here, 
A topic that the Chinese themselves have become much more interested in in recent years but was never talked about is the Burma campaign, the second Burma campaign, 1944, in which, again, it's often forgotten in the outside world, the Chinese yeah. troops actually played a significant role. Uh, they were, yeah, of course, there the along with the Americans yeah. under... Stillwell and, and, and others. Because it was nationalist and not communist armies who were involved, the, the uh, Mao uh, government you know, never talked about this for a long time. But most recently, that memory has been revived. It's been revived both as a sense of pride, but also a reminder, first of all, that Chinese troops did fight outside China's own territories, at least in one important campaign. And secondly, a reminder that China, even more than the other powers involved, the Australians, the British, the Americans, could ill afford those well-trained troops in Burma and in other circumstances probably would be better off making sure yeah. that they were actually deployed on Chinese territory because Operation Ichigo was blasting into central China at exactly the same time that some of China's best nationalist troops were actually over the border in Burma. Trying to thanks open up to the Burma Road. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, as soon as the, the Burma Road is opened up, they, they, you know, Chang pulls them back out again, and quite rightly too. But... but you know, Ichigo, Ichigo is extraordinary, isn't it? Because the, the Japanese are absolutely screwed. You know, they're, they're really uh, absolutely scraping the barrel. And yet they launch this protracted offensive, which lasts, I think, the best part of six months, if I remember rightly. You know, pushing all the way down into South and linking up to Indochina, now Vietnam. You know, it's, an, it's a huge, a huge sort of narrow corridor that they take over, isn't it? I mean... Incredible, really. It's an extraordinary campaign, a last throw of the Japanese dice in 1944, um, but one that they calculate at that time might succeed. I should say, by the way, if you haven't had him before, sometime on the podcast, podcast you ought to get Cambridge University's Hans van der Ven, author of China at War, who is an absolute kind of, you know, gold dust expert on Ichigo in particular and oh. Chinese military strategy during this time in, in, in general. And his book is you know, widely and generally available. I highly recommend it. But on Ichigo... One of the things that is, first of all, notable when it um, emerges in May 1944 is this sort of final Japanese thrust into central China. As you say, it lasts for about six months till basically sort of ending up at the beginning of, of, of 1945, is that the Japanese realise that things are going very badly for them. One of the reasons that they um, are unable to hold a lot of their kind of island empire in, in the Pacific by this stage is that lots of their shipping has been sunk by this, um, this stage. And so maintaining the continental troops that they have is partly a matter of the fact that they haven't got any very easy method to move them around by that, uh, by that stage. But beyond that... What, so you might as well use them in China because they've got nowhere else to go? You might as well, because by this stage, essentially, you know, the, the bet had always been, even you know, after Pearl Harbor, that they would go in really quickly. They would, you know, launch lightning war across Asia and then, you know, sue for, for some sort of settlement at that stage yeah. and have all the resources, all of that, you know, get the oil, get the rubber, all that, all that, all that sort of thing. And that was going by 1944. That was clearly going horribly wrong from their point of view. But they could still see. And indeed, it was you know, objectively the case that the nationalist government, the Chinese nationalist government, was pretty much on its uppers by 1944. It was falling apart. All the things we've mentioned, the sort of involution that comes from throwing everything into the hopper of the war machine and, you know, everything else just goes hang, you know, sort of personal welfare or you know, starvation, whatever it might be. They could see that that wasn't a state that could sustain itself for very long. So if they pushed in... They thought they could either negotiate a separate peace with Chiang Kai-shek, whether they could is another matter, but, you know, that's one of the hopes I think that they, they, they had. Or they could just engineer state collapse, uh, you know, a last thrust on Chongqing. I, I mean, I think you've said this in a previous podcast, but worth noting, one of the reasons that the nationalists choose Chongqing as their last redoubt is that it's on cliffs. It's very, very hard to attack by land, which is one of the reasons why air raids were, were more effective. But you could do it if you had to. And I think the Japanese by this stage were hoping that they'd be able to get enough of their act together to push up the Yangtze, to push up the Jialing, and basically finally take that, uh, that capital. In the end, their resources did not proved sufficient to be able to do that. It ended in another sort of uneasy stalemate. But you could say that while the Japanese Ichigo campaign did not succeed in terms of its aim of finally knocking out China, the definite losers were the nationalists who found that their last, you know, sort of reserves and resources were essentially smashed into pieces by Ichigo. And had it not been again for, you know, the event of the, uh, of the atomic bombings just a few months later, it's really hard to see how they could have sustained that war effort for, you know, two years into 1946 or 47, because Ichigo had done a huge amount to destroy that capacity. Well, I've got a question for you then. then. Um, say uh, Renya Mutaguchi uh, um, does get up to Dimapur and then on to... Uh, crosses the Brahmaputra in um, the spring of 1944. 
um, and is able to get up into Assam and knock out those airfields, those American airfields. Do you think that would have? Do you think there's a chance that would have precipitated um, collapse in China? Yes. I mean, the short answer is that by the time you get to 1943, 44, 45, just what we know objectively did happen as opposed to what might have happened. The nationalist state is immensely fragile by that stage, as you mentioned before, actually, James, you know, it's tremendously dependent on huge amounts of supplies being flown in. And yet, of course, huge is a relative term. You know, they're not enough to actually keep an entire state um, state going. And most of the sort of the sinews of the state, you know, tax collection and ability to maintain a kind of stable currency. You know, we haven't, it, hyperinflation is, is pretty much hitting at this stage. You know, money isn't worth anything anymore. So anything else that basically makes another major change in the strategic position of the nationalist government, I think could easily be in a death blow at this uh, at this stage. And I think also the realisation of that is one of the reasons why the um, Allied commanders on the British and the American side, the American side in particular, kept on working out alternative scenarios if nationalist China collapsed, how would they then bring the Asian war to a conclusion? And of course, that's where, of course, thinking about the um, importance of the Soviet Union, which comes in right at the end in August 45, also builds into their thinking. One of the reasons, of course, why... Uh, Yalta, Potsdam, and so forth. It becomes so important to get a commitment from Stalin. Well, this is it's uh, it's such complex, nuanced, meaty stuff, isn't it? It's it's um it's just fascinating. Rana, is um is the war now viewed differently in China? Is there a is it changing? Because after all, uh, obviously there, there there must have been a period where all you had was a Maoist version of what what the Second World War even consisted of how it played out is Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek is obviously an enemy of enemy of Maoist China and, and of the Mao communists is he is he who is he now in Chinese historiography uh, and uh, and the popular view has he who, who who's he become so the view of World War Two in China has absolutely changed nearly fundamentally in the last 30, 40 years, and around a brief plug, I say my most recent book, China's Good War, uh, which is subtitled How World War II is Creating a New Nationalism, is about not the history of World War II, which I've dealt with in a, in a previous book, but the way in which World War II is perceived today in China, and it's bigger than ever. One of the biggest turns in the way in which the Chinese Communist Party has chosen to view the history of this period is they've let Chiang Kai-shek back in. From the 80s and 90s, from the position that he was in as the kind of, you know, traitor of a thousand generations or whatever, who, you know, had been justly defeated on the mainland and kicked off to Taiwan, never to be seen again. That element, of course, in terms of fighting the communists is still maintained. But there's now a sort of supplementary and quite an important supplementary that basically says, yeah, but you know what, when it came to fighting the Japanese, actually... He did a reasonable job. You know, communists probably still did better. Well, there's some debate about whether that's true or not. But, you know, but nonetheless, we have to acknowledge the contribution of the nationalist um, uh, armies and the nationalist government and of Chiang Kai-shek himself. So if you go, as I have done several times, to Huangshan, which is Chiang Kai-shek's old wartime headquarters. This is like the Churchill's war rooms of, of China. So it's just outside Chongqing. Well worth a visit, actually, you have a chance to go. They've got Chiang Kai-shek's old villa and his Buick and his, you know, war room with a desk and telephone and everything, all set up, and actually also a kind of waxwork statue of him wearing a kind of scholar's gown and little moustache and everything, all very respectfully done, actually. He's not being mocked, he's not so being he's, regarded as a, a sort he's of... He's not a running dog of capitalism or any of that stuff. In this case, fighting the Japanese, absolutely not. So it's a rather sort of split view of history because once you get to the civil war against the communists yeah. of course there's no holds barred and he's regarded very much as you know there's still this this very kind of um evil figure but when it comes to his world war ii contribution you're right that under mao it was hardly ever mentioned and certainly chiang kai-shek's contribution couldn't be mentioned in anything other than the most dismissive terms that's not at all what's discussed now and it has led to this slightly weird not exactly 180 degree turn but you might say 90 degree turn in cities like chongqing which obviously don't openly oppose the communist view of history because they, they can't, uh, not, not in China. But they have been given space now to celebrate the nationalist period of wartime in their own city. And as I said, apart from Chiang Kai-shek's old mansion, you'll find many, plenty of mentions the way in which the city resisted heroically against these air raids and so forth. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't really come into that story because apart from a relatively small placement within the city, a kind of mission to, to it, it was all really about Chiang Kai-shek at that time. And what's uh, brought this time. shift about? do you think? 
There's a couple of things, but basically it's a combination of, in the 1970s and 80s, after the end of the Cultural Revolution, this sort of devastating, horrific period of, of, of Chinese history, China's people were really, you know, tired beyond belief of violent class warfare, which was what Mao's period in power had really given yeah. them. They wanted something more unifying that would actually bring people together. And the memory, as in other countries, as yeah. in our own, you know, as in the UK, of a unifying event when, you know, being attacked wasn't your fault, but once you were attacked, you all stood together against the enemy, <laughs> became a really important, powerful um, uh, story. The other element, which is still very much with us today, is Taiwan. In the 1980s and 90s, there was a feeling that, you know, the island where Chiang Kai-shek and his people had fled might be more inclined to unify with the mainland if instead of kind of cursing them the whole time, there was an attempt to try and find some common ground. And actually for two, you know, two or three decades, there was a lot of collaboration, not just between leaders, but actually between academics, scholars, people who run museums, trying to find, you know, that point of commonality saying that although, you know, your lot went off to Taiwan, our lot stayed in the yeah. mainland, we did all fight the Japanese. That's actually much weaker today than it was 10 or 15 years ago because the government now in, in uh, power in Taiwan doesn't really acknowledge that link with the mainland uh, 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 at all. It's, it's stronger when the former Guomindang nationalists are in power in their new democratic uh, form. But nonetheless, those have been part of the motivation, you know, a kind of sense of patriotism at home and desire to try and sort out some of the last remaining bits of geopolitics that have led to this much broader and actually very widely understood story of World War II in China that simply wasn't there. 40 or 50 years ago. Gosh, how interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Fascinating. Well, Rana, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, oh, incredible Thank you for stuff. this. It's, it's really, really just so interesting. And, you know, we say it so many times, but, but you know, you think you've just started to sort of make sense of this huge, great, giant global <laughs> conflict, and you realise there's so much still to one. To, to discover well that's that's always the great thing to be able to talk you know, to experts uh, like the two of you about the kind of bigger picture and bringing some perhaps slightly unexpected elements into it but it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, i hope this is not the last time that you know china's on the the agenda i'm sure it'll come back sooner rather later no it absolutely won't be uh, and we'll be seeing you at Warfest, won't we in july so looking forward to that very much and we'll be able to catch up with all sorts of conversations there if anyone who's listening to the podcast and wants to come over and have a chat then i shall look forward to that very much wonderful superb well thanks everybody um we've been talking to rana mitter um thanks for listening we'll see you again soon bye bye cheerio bye